This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Hi, everybody. My name is Alexis Boylan. I'm a professor of art history and Africana studies and the director of academic affairs at the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute and also the co-curator of the curator rather of Seeing Truth, the exhibition and project that we will be talking about today and that this programming is associated with. And before I get started, I also just want to thank the Luce Foundation, which makes all things happen relating to Seeing Truth and have generously funded both the exhibition and the programming associated with it. So Max, I hate doing introductions because they make me nervous and I always get it wrong and I always feel like I emphasize the wrong things. So would you introduce us to you and to who you are and what you do and any other piece of information you would like our audiences to know? Sure. My name is Max Liberon. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I'm originally from Treaty 6 territory in northern Alberta in Canada, which is part of a, a Métis, Cree, Cree Métis, and settler, both family and community. And now I live in on the island of Newfoundland in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, also in Canada, which are homelands of the Baotuk. And the province are the homelands of the Mi'kmaq, the Innu and the Inuit, as well as the Baotuk. I do a lot of things as it pertains to this conversation. I do professorship. Uh, where I have a lab called CLEAR, 
as mm -hmm. part of that. We do scientific and social or natural scientific and social scientific work, mm -hmm. mostly around plastic pollution research and all of the different anti-colonial methodologies we can bring to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I am also formerly an artist, mm -hmm. professional artist. I was an artist for many years. I have two art degrees. So yeah, so I'm a little bit fluent in some of the visual culture conversations we might have. So I have to ask you, tell us about your art, because that's not where we're going in this conversation. But now I didn't know this about you. And now that's where I want to go, because that's yeah. So just you can even just be very like, do you do you make do you currently make art or is it not sort of actually okay. it's not a practice that like sometimes I'm like, oh, I should do a thing. Oh, it's kind of art. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll put it on my website, but I, I'm not a practicing artist in any way. No. Okay. Okay. I have, I have several job hats. I am not also an artist. <laughs> Too many hats. I mean, I'm just going to, and again, I don't mean to argue with your introduction of yourself, but I, I sort of feel like I think part of what I'm trying to explore is that why do we have these definitions of what an artist is and what a scientist is? And like, that all these sort of definitions are also part of maybe the ways in which we are limiting the ways in which we actually even can see ourselves or each other or all that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I constantly am actually bristling at the idea of being an artist because I'm not a hundred percent sure I believe in that just because I think it quarantines creativity in a weird sort of way, but. Sure. Except for I actively and specifically left the capital A art world on very certain terms. And so I find it very useful to say things like I'm not an artist. Okay. All right. We're going to have an interview maybe all about that later on, because that sounds actually like an amazing dialogue that I would love to have. But I actually, I want to get everybody sort of focused on your amazing book. And I told Max before we started that I am like a super fangirl. This book was incredibly, just picked it up at a bookstore and was transformed. And so partly I'm just, I want everyone who is listening to this to go out and read this book. But Max, would you talk a little bit about just what pollution is colonialism is about? And can you talk to people a little bit about the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research or CLEAR? And then what that means in terms of being an anti-colonial lab? Yeah. Oh yeah, just a couple of things. Yeah. So the book, Pollution is Colonialism, I consider it a methods text. Other people also consider it it's a methods text. Mm -hmm. It talks about how research methods and land relations are the same thing whenever you engage in any, and research here is very broad. It can be art creation, curation, administration, as well as social science, natural science research, et cetera. Whenever you engage in that, you're engaging in land relations. And a lot of the dominant research methods that are out there are highly extractive and often rely on access to indigenous land and life, particularly if you're on occupied indigenous land. And so it, it sort of takes people through like, here's what that looks like, here's what it means, things that you might think are inherently good might be good in some registers, but are also colonial in others. For like, as a very basic example, the most common way to investigate plastics in biota, by which we mean living things, is to digest it in a very strong base. Yeah, it turns it into goo. For that, you need to put the goo, some, the toxic goo somewhere when you're done to neutralize it, and that requires land. And so something that seems very benign is, is you know, assumes access to sort of colonial land relations. Mm -hmm. And so it takes folks through what that means, how it's very uh, hard to spot in everyday research relations. I use a lot of my own research relations to talk about that, including, and then the last chapter is about CLEAR, Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, just clear, <laughs> uh, which is my lab where we study plastic pollution, but we also work very hard to do what we call anti-colonial land relations in our research. 
Some of them are indigenous, although we don't actually talk about that in the book because that's not for public consumption generally. But to, to refuse to reproduce colonial land relations and to produce other types of land relations is what we talk about in everything from like how we do statistics to how we gather samples to how we do peer review, but the entire, how we take out the trash, like the entire, every moment of the, of the process. Mm-hmm. So that's the short version. Okay. No, that's brilliant. That's really helpful. I'm wondering, I'm thinking a lot of our audience will also because of past past podcasts will be and webcasts will be familiar with the idea of indigenous science. And so I was actually wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the, and again, I think sort of the overlap, the distinction between being an anti-colonial lab and, and why that is your term and then what indigenous science is. And then again, I think, you know, I, I can already hear also another population of people being like, I don't understand science is science. Like, you know, so you just, you deal with the pollution a little differently. What's, what's fundamentally different about the, why are we categorizing these things this way? Because I think a lot of people are very in love with the idea of science as cohesive and whole and unifying. So can you sort of talk about those ideas? I am setting you up. Did you notice that? So the categorizations do a lot of ethical work. Mm-hmm. as well as epistemological work. So actual work about how knowledge is produced and what that knowledge is. So indigenous science and not all indigenous folks and groups and nations love that term and lots of right. contest. Right. But what it generally means most commonly is systematic knowledge production by indigenous people for mm-hmm. indigenous people around indigenous research questions, which means that th- there's not a lot of access to folks who aren't indigenous into indigenous science. Like sometimes there's partnerships and stuff like that, but generally not so much. And that's why Clear says we don't do indigenous science. So sometimes we have a bunch of indigenous folks in the lab. We have a lot of, we have only indigenous partnerships. Well, not only, mostly. And a lot of those folks use what might be called traditional ecological knowledge, knowledge from their elders, knowledge passed down, you know, all these sorts of ways that that have a, a, a spirit and an epistemology that are that can be brought to Western science, but n- not completely. Right. But the academy is so hungry, hungry hippo for those things that we usually don't write it down. We don't make it accessible, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because you have to earn that knowledge and putting on paper and having that paper circulate promiscuously sort of skips that set steps. So instead, that's why we emphasize so much about anti-colonial knowledge. A lot, anyone can get involved in anti-colonial knowledge, including indigenous folks. And I would say pretty much all indigenous science is probably also anti-colonial science. But it's basically thinking about land relations in your science a different way. The vast majority of Western, so first of all, Western science was a huge force behind colonialism, both to prove that it was required to sort of like save the quote unquote savages, but also in order to make it logistic. So like, how do you deal with cholera when you go to these places and like eat your poopy water because you don't know how to deal with water properly in this place or, you know, all these sorts of things? How, you know, how do you extract botanicals from this place to bring back to the UK botanical gardens that mm-hmm. takes, you know, so science is a huge force behind colonialism and it's not like we've forgotten that. It's also used a lot to subjugate us. So everything from like measuring the sides of our heads back in the day to, to from a social science perspective, talk about the reasons that we don't thrive in, in Western institutions because of certain shortcomings in our social fabric or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
scientifically does not play well with others because indigenous or black or white, these sorts of things, right? So anti-colonial science takes as its starting point, a different set of directions and ethics and what counts as valid, what a research question might look like and how any process relates back to land. So I'm in a geography department and there's a little bit of geology in that, which is rocks. (laughs) (laughs) And people just go get those things and they bring them back. I was like, well, do you have permission for that? A lot of, I mean, that's indigenous land. And actually a lot of scientists compared to social scientists, I find, know that you need permits and permission to take stuff from land. Actually, you just can't go get stuff. Right. And so there's a smaller hop for some of them understanding that there are in fact land relations. And the, the, the hop is being like, actually they're indigenous land relations. You have to get permission not only from the departments of fisheries and oceans and the departments of lands and natural resources and you know, whatever, but also the indigenous nations who, who, who have a relationship with that rock. I was going to ask, do you find that that, that sort of the, the more easy trans relatableness of that is because of how successful federal white institutions have been at creating ideas of property and bureaucracies. I mean, it seems like a very, like the exact weaponry that is typically used against indigenous populations, then, you know, this sort of a love of the bureaucracy. So pro tip for professional environmentalism is to take your allies where you bloody find them. And if that's in like colonial bureaucracy, then that's in colonial bureaucracy. I mean, what's treaty? If it's if it's properly followed, that's a police of colonial bureaucracy. And sometimes all we want is for people to follow their freaking treaties. Right. Right. So yeah, take it where you can get it. One of my biggest allies at my university is the Biohazardous Waste Management Committee, because they very readily understand the samples I have as food and as animals that have relationships to land. And according to the indigenous protocols that we follow for some things, you have to return that to the land if it's not toxic. Okay. And usually what you're supposed to do is incinerate that. And so I had to go through processes to be like, actually, can we just, can we bury it or put it in the land or put it in the water? Here's the ramifications. Here's the indigenous protocols. Here's an elder you can call. And they're like, yep, no problem. Off you go. And I was like, oh, that was the easiest <laughs> bit of allyship ever to happen in the history of anti-colonial science in my career. <laughs> so yeah, so ju- just because something is a colonial piece of technology, like like bureaucracy, doesn't mean it can't be used against itself. Right. Right. Which actually is a beautiful segue to the next question I have, which is you write in your book, at Clear, we use science against science. And I was wondering if you could actually sort of unpack that. We've had a lot of different people sort of on this podcast and webcast talking about like what is sort of salvageable? What kind of knowledge has actually been sort of is is recuperable? What, you know, and I'm thinking about specifically in the conversation that have often has about museums, like are, are these places worth saving or are these simply such toxic locations that there's no point? You write and, and posit that science and traditional lab spaces have, as you actually lovely, as you're phrasing, is already fucked up. And I would parenthetically note that is museums and all dialogues about art are fundamentally flawed at their core and have this imperialist, genocidal, racist core to them. The question is sort of what is worth saving and how can you use science you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, can we use the master's tools to, you know, th- that sort of idea. How do you use science against science? So this comes down to what I would call and lots of people call theories of change, 
right? And these are very serious questions that thought experiments will not solve. Like you actually need empirical evidence to see how this works and whether it works, right? Which is which is what CLEAR is. It's a giant incubator to see how and whether these, these projects work because we are a traditional Western science lab. So first I'm gonna back up a bit and say, I am zero invested in salvaging the institution. So I take a lot of my lead from La Paperson, who's also Wayne Yang, and his book, A Third University is Possible. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- very valuable things that he articulates in that for me is that you need a theory of change that notices the permeability, he's direct quote, permeability of apparatuses of power. So colonial institutions accidentally are anti-colonial kind of often because they fail to really keep their poop in a pile, right, in certain mm-hmm. ways. And like stuff gets, there's repatriation and then sometimes stuff just makes it back to community, mm-hmm. right? And falls through the cracks or community, come, you know, whatever. Or things get lost or mislabeled and they, you know. So I'm not invested in decolonizing the noun, decolonizing science, the museum, the art, this whatever. Mm-hmm. I am interested in a decolonizing science or an anti-colonializing science or something like that. I'm not interested in salvaging the container that that is like a super shitty container. I'm interested in leveraging that container to do good in whatever capacities it has, great, small, and in between, so that it does good in the wider world, mm-hmm. including inside that own institution, its own workers, its own collections, etc., its own processes. But the the container is not what's at stake, the noun, right? There's a lot of a lot of indigenous languages that have mostly verbs and not so many nouns because we don't really give a shit about nouns really like the shit is with the verbs mm-hmm. and so um, using science against science means like we're using the process of science against this container right. and you can you can decouple those two things mm-hmm. and use western science in ways that it even kind of lar- like it's it's not like I've got scientific scandals because of how I do science. I'm published in, I'm published in fucking nature, right? Like it's not so weird that I'm unrecognizable to science in any way, mm-hmm. but my work circulates a little bit differently and is useful a little bit differently. And I have research questions that are a little bit different and the methods we have are a little bit weird and kind of look old fashioned and right, because I'm using um, the tools that are available to me for goals and processes that they might not be designed for, and I am stealing all the resources of the institution to put it into those efforts, which are better land relations as much as possible. Right. right. So, yeah, I'm not trying to dismantle the master's house. I don't give too many shits about the house, but I'm definitely taking those bloody tools. Okay. Okay. I hope um, swear you a lot on your podcast or that was just a I do. No, no, no. I, I do. And in real life. And sometimes when you have to say things with urgency, you have to use urgent language. So I think that is very helpful. I'm I'm actually this is just my response to that is like that must be exhausting to be in in a sense that it takes a lot of optimism about the changeability of things against what I think we both know is not a lot of evidence. I mean, colonial, imperial, racist institutions are actually tenaciously good at looking like it's changing and then changing back. And 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 so I just I, I guess I was just sort of wondering like what keeps you focused on this and without because it's also deeply work intensive to yeah to be constantly trying to subvert a system that is also secretly trying to subvert your work right i'm trying to grift 
I am there to pass and pass and pass and take all the resources and put them back in stolen, like in, into into stolen and impoverished and genocide relations, which is not that hard if you grift. If you're trying to subvert and flip all the tables and burn it down, yeah, you don't circulate very well. Okay. I circulate just fine, and I can get into the vault, right? And that's and that's a that's a choice. That's one tactic amongst many. It's not so exhausting because I'm not having the struggle of not selling out to the man. And what if I? I mean, there's a ton of ethics work I have to do. A ton and ton of time. But it's done in and with community. And so if I screw up, an auntie's going to slap me upside the back of the head, literally or figuratively. Mm-hmm. We've got elders who, who, who are part of the work and know what's going on. I partner it, right? So a lot of the ethical labor and trying to figure out if what I'm doing is okay or screwed up is, is collective and taken care of by many hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, sometimes I see younger activists really, really carrying the weight of like, oh, I'm taking dirty money or should I or should not? I'm like, take it. It's stolen. Steal it back. I do not see the problem with this, right? Mm-hmm. And so this, again, this isn't a universal approach that will work for everyone in all cases. Right. But my laborious points are very different than the laborious points you pointed out because yes the institutions change to stay the same all the time but again mm-hmm. i'm not invested in the institution i'm right. not interested in decolonizing the university the museum or the lab i'm interested in one that i can leverage for change which is a very different project this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Right, right. So I'm interested then, and now particularly based on your answer to that question, I am a total lurker on Twitter. And ever since I read your book, and I'm just going to, I'm going to prop your book again. It's brilliant. I started following you on Twitter and you have beautiful photographs like every day, not every day, but most days, I think of where you live. And it started to strike me. I'm a visual person. I study visual culture. Like the, I don't, I was, and now with this added piece about you are definitely not an artist with a capital A, I'm now even more interested in sort of what, what part of your Twitter practice, political or scientific or visual, or why are you posting pictures every day, every morning, regularly about where you live? What, what, what is that? And how does that relate to your larger project? Or does it not? And it's just shit you do. I do have a healthy life work distinction and those photos are life and they are, they are not work. Okay. I mean, I post those photos because Twitter is depressing and people need something that isn't depressing while they're doom scrolling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also because actually a lot of people do something similar in this province. The hashtag is NL weather NLWX. And if you follow that hashtag, all sorts of folks are posting pictures because like News about the weather is actually kind of important here in a, in a place where there's a lot of fishing and people going out and where the weather can kill you and or change in 10 minutes or it's different 10 minutes away. And so it's actually part of a collection of a lot. I just happen to live in an exceptionally beautiful place. So some of my photos aren't of like houses with vinyl siding and they're, you know, more beautiful vistas. So while it is part of your personal life, do you find that adding something to our visual aesthetic community 
has a political edge to it? I'm sure it does. Okay. Okay. So Twitter is really your space or those photographs are your space. Yeah. I mean, they're my space shared. They're the, the, to the degree that I share any amount of my personal life in public arenas, which is actually not very much uh, the amount I share. Okay. All right. Well, it's, it's as, as I said, if you are all out there and you're looking for something to actually give you a moment of something else, it is, they, they are, just so you know, they are deeply effective and meaningful. But so these are the last two questions and I ask them of everybody. The first is that part of this project is to engage with the American Natural History Museum and some of the objects that they have in their much longer project of creating knowledge. And one of the ways in which we've talked about it is as instigator objects, meaning that they will be put in the various exhibition spaces without some of the context, but without necessarily linking it to specific historical context, but instead letting it interact with other objects and other samples and other kinds of data and creativity and information. But so I was just wondering, was there any sort of, and, and I use the word instigator advisedly because I want it to sort of instigate something. I want it to be a, a provocation. Was there any film or image or object that was particularly provocative or instigating? So a two-part answer to that question. Awesome. The images immediately, I was like, oh, the miniature diorama of polar bears and the photo of the diorama of the gorilla. Ah, because most of my, I built, when I did have an art career, I built miniature dioramas. Ah, okay. Natural history things. And I spent a lot of time at the Natural History Museum. My Mm -hmm. master's thesis is on those dioramas. All of all critiques of colonial land relations and the the mastery colonial mastery over nature through the sort of convening with nature through these pretty grotesque diorama situations, mm-hmm. right? The, mm-hmm. You know, so like gazing into the glass eyeballs of the gazelle and being one with the stuffed glassy eyeballed gazelle, right? And mm-hmm. drawing a lot on like Donna Haraway's piece Teddy Bear Patriarchy, which I think is some of her best work, talking about the highly gendered and colonial relationships of the weird logic that leads to something like a natural history diorama, which is a very weird and unique genre, if you mm-hmm. And I even once put recorders on me and wandered around the Natural History Museum in New York City and recorded what people were saying and then spliced it into an audio tour. Mm-hmm. And it was pornographic, like the fetishization yeah. and the squealing and the, the mm thing of the mm was, it was like, it wasn't subtle. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where I used to be. Right. And so this is why it's a two part thing. If you had asked me this 10 years ago, this question, I would have been like dioramas, critiques of nature. La la. That's where I am. That's what I think about. That's what resonates. This is the let's, the, you know, I have found again, as a, what I would call a professional activism activist, that critique only gets you so far and then you got to get shit done. And critique is often not so useful for that. It's really great on saying what you shouldn't reproduce. Mm-hmm but not what you should produce, which is what I try and do in pollution is colonialism. It's like deal with that problem. Okay, right. what if you put on a lab coat? What if you are a natural history museum staff person? What if, like, what if you don't get to like start from a different spot? Right. It's like crappy starting spot. And so if I now think about myself now and the, the sort of work and stuff we do, immediately it's the crampons that I go to. Mm-hmm. Oh, crampons. I know crampons. I got crampons. I got to fix my crampons. What's up with this photo of the crampons? You click on it, you learn about it. And it's about some dude and where he put his little colonial feet using those crampons. And I'm like, damn, no, like what's actually interesting is the crampons because Mm -hmm. we have to get shit done and you're going to need crampons for it. Everyone around here where I live, 
you need crampons or you will not get up the hill to get your chores in the morning or to get to your car and you'll break your ankles, right? All this sort of stuff. So that's what the, the, the disjuncture between why I think crampons are important to the kind of project mm-hmm. that of anti-colonial science, research, art making, etc., versus the the flavor text, the, the panel text that talks about dude, mm-hmm. who I am disrespectfully not remembering his name, Ellsworth. Like, I don't care about Ellsworth. I care about crampons because they help you get the shit done. Because this is this is all about chores, mm-hmm. right? It's all about chores in place. And around here, that means crampons. So I, I, I love that answer because I think one of the things that really drew me to actually sort of demand that the crampons be in the show was because we have such intimacy with things like that and they get immediately re- like that probably the thing that everybody knows the most and visualizes the most is the thing that you put on every day or that actually like if it breaks it like ruins everything like it's not you know that there is actually if you read a lot of expedition journals like straps breaking is like a disaster like that is that is the end of the day and 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 the intimacy that you have to have with these objects and then the way that they're disappeared completely from any kind of analysis i find fascinating i also love the two-part answer the sort of like where where one might start a conversation and where one might end a conversation but i also think that this idea of intimacy it's interesting too in your response that you're talking about a desire and a, a sexualization of dioramas and then I think the intimacy of the crampons like we are we have these bodies these bodies have you know not infinite ways to respond to things and so like what what is joy or desire sound like what does frustration sound like what does my body can't actually get up this mountain without a crampon so like this becomes a really important part of me so I love that answer so this is the last question and everyone hates it I'll just sort of like preface that with everybody hates it and then everybody also wants to negotiate for more truths and I asked this question um, coming as in thinking about uh, the central sort of argument that um, started a lot of these conversations was several colleagues missing a sense of truth. And then several of us who grew up in a different sort of intellectual moment, never having believed in truth to miss it. And and then sort of, but where are we all right now, right here with this word. So tell me one truth that you know, how do you know this truth and what evidence or data can you supply to support your truth? I'm probably going to answer it the same way everyone else answers. It's just like, what do yeah. you mean? I, this is what I would call a creepy question, quote unquote, yeah. because it wants something about me and I don't know what it wants. And that makes me distrust the question. Huh. Do you want to give me more information? No, no, I certainly do not. No, that's the thing is that it's a little bit about a kind of like, what do you do you want? Do you ever think about truth as part of 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 your anchoring motivation or stability? Or is truth a, a topic or an idea that doesn't really matter to you very much? I guess that's the only clarification I will give, because partially it's a question that wants something, but not me. I don't I, I, I actually just am interested. I am fundamentally interested in what people say to this and you you would be probably not at all surprised that the answers are everybody wants to say more than one. And then once they can't, then they turn on the question and then, yeah, but I want nothing. The question wants nothing. It's just words that I say. 
So maybe surprisingly, as a scientist, truth doesn't actually figure into our work very much. Mm -hmm. Knowledge does, but not truth. It's not a category that has a weight to it. It's not useful because okay. it doesn't have a methodology behind it. it. Like it's different than validity. It's different than evidence. It's different than knowledge production. It's different than the stuff we engage in. So it's not actually a word that gets used in any of our work or really has a lot of salience. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. That's that's the perfect answer that I was looking for that I didn't even know. So, yeah. Pardon? I said, so you do want something out of it. No, I just want, I, I want to hear what everybody, I, I want to hear what people say, because I think that, again, it, it varies. It's, it's a question that all of us are very, we're very wary of for exactly the reasons that you say. Like, there's also a hesitation to, or there's no hesitation. Several people have answered it and been like, this is the truth. This is what I know. So I, I, I you know, it, it's not surprising that I am a person and I, have been very interested all along in sort of where where does this word fall in any of our minds or our intellectual journeys and then some people answer it in a very personal way you know again so that's you know so so brilliant thank you so much for your time pollution is colonialism i feel a little vanna white-ish by standing here and showing off your book but the book is brilliant and your work is fantastic and thank you very much for your time my pleasure. I'll also add the first chapter is free online at Duke Press. And my Twitter has a 30% off Duke coupon if you want to get it on the cheaps. And then Duke always has 50% off sales twice a year. So you can get it for 12 bucks American. Free shipping. Amazing. So there's truly no reason why we all should not be reading this book several times. It's also really just, it is a very readable and engaging book. So yeah, I've embarrassed you enough. We'll stop. Thank you. It was really nice talking with you. You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network. Thank you.